1: Hey, everybody. Hello, monkeys, and welcome, new listeners, to the Snark Monkey Podcast. I am Larry Morgan. We are on Twitter at the Snark TheSnarkMonkey. Uh, you can follow us on our Facebook page. We update you on all sorts of cool stuff there. And also uh, go to SnarkMonkey.net. We are on iTunes and iHeartRadio and uh, Spreaker, if you know what that is. Maybe in the U.K., more people know that. Uh, Neither here nor there. Hey, uh, 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 today, (laughs) I'm a professional communicator. Uh, Today we're talking to Nina Tassler in Snark Monkey number 48. And those of you on the inside in the Hollywood world probably know that name as a very powerful figure in television. Those of you outside of entertainment may not know the name Nina Tassler, but you have probably been affected by by one of the many shows that she has greenlit within CBS television over the years. For a long time, Nina has been instrumental in helping to make CBS, well, bring them back to prominence, actually, after wallowing in fourth place back in the 90s. And ever since then, they have really been dominant in prime time. So I'm talking about helping to shepherd along the CSI franchise, Uh, a number of the Chuck Lorre sitcoms that have become some of the most popular comedies on television, Two and a Half Men, and oh, The Big Bang Theory, and also uh, making sure that there was a representation of really strong female characters like The Good Wife, and Madam Secretary, and the sitcom Mom, and uh, also in the transition of Stephen Colbert taking over for Letterman in Late Night, as president and then chairman of CBS Entertainment. Nina Tazzler has basically been responsible for about half of the television shows that you've always loved. And now that she has kind of moved on from that position of power, what did she do? Did she write a scathing tell-all Hollywood story? No, that's that's my job with her. (laughs) We, We actually kind of delve into a little bit of her background. But no, she actually wrote a really terrific book. Uh, The name of which is, it's long, so I have to kind of stare at something here. Uh, What I Told My Daughter, she could have stopped right there, that's a great title, but it's What I Told My Daughter, Lessons from Leaders on Raising the Next Generation of Empowered Women. So yes, she basically, as a gift to her daughter, that she then also allowed the rest of the world to enjoy, she has gathered different stories and some advice from women of power all over the world, from uh, arts and entertainment and politics, et cetera. A really great idea and a lovely book, which is available now wherever books are sold. So, yeah, um, Nina talks to me a little bit about how she went from the daughter of some very interesting, eclectic and progressive parents in upstate-ish New York to the world of theater Uh, studying in Boston and then heading to Broadway, and then how that translated into one of the most impressive positions in television, as well as becoming one of the most respected and uh, perhaps even feared powerful women in Hollywood. And, you know... we still to this day i mean i just did it myself qualified it as a uh, as a woman in hollywood but you know we addressed the idea as she was coming up because there weren't that many women of power in the industry and she became somebody who had a huge impact on what was going on at cbs and you know as far as i can tell pretty much all positive good job nina So this is a great conversation, and uh, her journey, as always, is quite fascinating. She is a delightful lady, and the book she wrote is great. Oh, and as we're listening to this, um, this weekend, she'll be the commencement speaker at her alma mater, Boston University, if you're listening to this anywhere on the weekend of the 13th, 14th, and 15th. So I believe she's doing it the 15th. If you're listening after that point, hey, hey, thanks for catching up. So, yes, this is a great conversation. Oh, and by the way, this space right here, available for sponsorship. That space you just heard? Yeah, I could plug in your commercial there and, you know, sell your product to the Legion of Monkeys. (laughs) Well, that just just sounds like a weird uh, superhero uh, group. Um, although, I would buy that comic book. I would see that movie, The Legion of Monkeys. You know, I'm talking about the monkey followers, the monkey horde, if you will. Uh, you know, that doesn't sound as attractive. That sounds more like the supervillain from a bad comic book. Although, again, I'd see that movie. Anyway, uh, uh, let's just say uh, you could you could uh, sponsor this uh, podcast, so reach out. Anyway, en- <laughs> enjoy... Should I just re-record this whole intro? Should I start from scratch? Nah, what do you care? You've already fast-forwarded past this crap anyway. Here we go. Nina Tassler, Snark Monkey number 48. Hit the, uh, what do you call the music there? (laughs) What's it like being on a press tour? I mean, you do, you've do you done so much for CBS over the years, but, you know, those upfronts and all that stuff, but it's not like you've ever kind of had to go out and tout a certain thing. Like, uh, you know, you, do, you don't have to sit down and do interviews about stuff a lot uh, it, over your career, so this must be kind of unusual for you.
2: It's unusual, and uh, sometimes it's a little awkward, but yeah. um, in the past, obviously, anytime I was promoting CBS stuff... Um, it was, uh, you know, I was just one of so many people behind um, the success of the shows we were talking about. There were, I mean, the producers, the writers, the creators, the actors, they are the ones responsible for, you know, the creation and the success of, of the content. I mean, in this case, um, it's similar in that I just curated the essays with my partner, Cynthia Littleton. Um, and, Obviously I wrote the preface, but it's it's still challenging to be sort of front and center right in talking about it.
1: Yeah, well but, but also interesting in that you I know mean, you've been given a lot of credit for the success that CBS Primetime and et cetera has had over the years, but this really is yours. I mean this is something that is obviously you've had help from Cynthia here, but but this is something that is personal to you, it means a lot to you. It's obviously been culled from I would guess, years of, of encounters with these different women you've talked to?
2: Well, it, it, it's actually, it, it started about four years ago. And uh, when I came up with the idea, um, and it came out of a, a kind of real life experience, which always makes it more authentic. And uh, it was something, you know, experience that happened, a situation that happened with my daughter, who was at the time 13. Um, and on the cusp Of her teenage years, she was in the tween years, and now, and you know, she was just on the on the verge of of being a teenager, and um, and I could tell that our relationship was was shifting and changing, and I needed a new, I sort of needed a new script to to talk to her.
1: Were you feeling like a little distant, like you you were? Grown apart in some way or was it just hard to hard to relate because she was changing so much
2: no it wasn't hard to relate we've always been very close um i just knew she needed something different from Mm me Mm -hmm. and and you know we you know mothers spend your whole life when your kids are young um you know you make sure they eat well did they get enough sleep are they taking their vitamins do they have their hand sanitizer are they wearing a bicycle helmet and now all of a sudden. You know, your the needs are the needs shift. Yeah, and- it's less
1: physical and it's more emotional and, and intellectual. So you're not just trying to take care of her and keep her from getting hit by a bus. You're actually trying to kind of help guide her as a human being as a, as a w- young woman?
2: As a young woman yeah. as a humanist and I'm going to say it as a feminist because mm-hmm. I really feel that um, unfortunately that conversation has been dormant for a number of years and I feel now more than ever and uh, you know we need to sort of stimulate that, that dialogue again and engage our girls when they're very young in talking about it the things that they want expect need in life and you know I have a son too and why should I want anything less for my daughter than I want for my son? So.
1: Right. and and you would also want your son to have the kind of respect for women that you're hoping that your daughter would get. So you're you're teaching both of them the same lesson. Essentially. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, it is interesting, though, uh, from a timely standpoint. Of course, the easy, you know, uh, connection would be the potential for a female president in the offing, uh, but also the fact that over the past months, the last year or so, the issue of equal pay has come up yet again, not just in Hollywood, but just overall. Um, Sexism obviously still exists in so many areas, and we're still trying to kind of grapple with why that exists and how it exists and how do we combat it. And you're somebody who's had a great deal of success at a high-profile place in a high-profile way. So you've shown that you can be an executive with power and with influence and with success, and and that's a very influential thing. So it is an interesting time for that conversation. Uh, you mentioned that part of this came from your own mother, that, yes. that, that there were lessons that she taught you at obviously a very different time. So was she... The anomaly at the time when she was talking to you? Did you recognize that she was a forward thinker when that wasn't necessarily always the case at that point?
2: Well, ironically, I think she was For me, she was more the norm. I mean, this was talking, you're talking about the, you know, the 60s and the 70s, where the women's movement had momentum, it had platforms, you had Ms. Magazine. My parents and both my mother and father were active in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the political movement. so I, my brother and my sister, were all – active in their lives. Um, you know, in those days, it was more, and I think ironically, in a number of the essays, a lot of women talk about bringing your daughters more into, you know, as a part of your life, you know, if you are politically active, if you are involved in community service, if you are, in, you know, even in your job, you know, bring your daughters with you. And my mother, who, you know, marched in the civil rights movement, was, was, you um, was a part of Women's Strike for Peace. Um, you know, there were a number of anti-war rallies that that me that I was taken to with my sister, um, and that was that's how I was raised. Um, so you know, all of a sudden, I and then you know, I went off to college in the seventies and. You know, I was looking at Our Bodies, Ourselves, which was printed in 1972 by Simon & Schuster, I might add. Um, So I think it was really it was more the norm than she was the anomaly.
1: Tell me about uh, more about your family. Where did you grow up? What part of the world?
2: I was born in New York City okay. I was actually born in Manhattan northern Manhattan in Washington Heights then moved out to Long Island which everybody did my father actually worked for CBS in 1955 which was interesting what did he do he was an audiovisual technician which or a cameraman I'm not sure he passed away a number of years ago but um, I believe he was an audiovisual technician uh, he worked at CBS in 19 I want to say 55 to 57 and then uh, we moved out to Long Island and the commute was too tough for him to make so he he went to work for Harmon Carden. And then we moved upstate New York, where my family had roots for many, many years. My, my parents grandparents, great-grandparents were in the children's camp business. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was raised um, every summer of my life from the time I was six years old, seven years old, till I was 13 or 14, uh, 15, um, going to summer camp. Um, But it was my parents' summer camp.
1: Yeah. So around a whole bunch of different people all the time, a bunch of different kids all the time.
2: Very much so. And kids who were brought from, um, you're talking about the camp opened, I mean, my great-grandparents had it, but my parents got it in 1963, which was the pre-Civil Rights Rights Act. Uh, so, in, which was uh, enacted in 1964. So we had kids who were coming from the Deep South, from parts of Alabama and Georgia, who were living in bunks with kids from Great Neck, Long, Long Island. So they'd never seen each, you know, white kids or black kids seeing white kids and white kids seeing black kids, let alone live in the same bunk with them. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And
1: an exposure for you to so many different cultures and different people too. I mean, I, I'm already getting a, a kind of a hint of uh, your upbringing. Was was uh, kind of this very specific. Sp- sociological aware kind of upbringing it's like you said that was all you ever knew right. were your were your parents anomalies or was i mean i'm trying to think in terms of like upstate new york you know was it relatively conservative around that time what what were they how were they treated in in the community
2: well uh interesting because uh sometimes pariahs but sometimes not because my family had lived up there my father's family had lived up there and my mother's family too for many many years We were accepted. And and what happened in upstate New York, um, and we were closer to the Massachusetts border, so it was like the New Mm -hmm. York-Berkshires, it was a very interesting split. Um, I went to school there. We lived there year-round. But most of the families who were in the camp business – lived in New York City or Long Island, and they went back there during the rest of the year. But because I I lived there and went to school with the kids that lived there, we all kind of – I was accepted. I was a part of the community. My family was a part of the community. Um, And my parents were kind of unique in that uh, my mother's family is from Puerto Rico, and uh, my mother converted to Judaism when she was 18 because she lived in a Jewish neighborhood and identified more with Jewish kids. Um, So I was raised as a Jew – raised uh but had half a Latin family and seriously latin um and lived in upstate New York. there were no Jews in my school there were no Latin kids in my school, and I was the only one but but again it was it was a it was a very wonderful accepting uh, neighborhood and community, and and I have very close friends to this day who live up there.
1: All right, that's interesting. What did your mom do uh, other than running the summer camp? Was um, it the camps? Was it was she a homemaker? Or was she a professional as well? Or
2: she did not have a job outside the home yeah. until we moved to Florida, which was in the early. 70s. Mm-hmm. So she had the camp year round. Um, she worked on political campaigns. She worked on the George McGovern campaign. She worked on, not in a professional capacity, but worked for Gene McCarthy. So um, she, I would never. Uh, I wouldn't qualify her a homemaker, but she was home, and right. she worked out of the home. Um, and because during the rest of the year, my parents were back and forth into the city doing, um, working together jointly on the camp.
1: So. Wow, what an interesting life. And, and again, very active, and obviously, so you early on had an exposure. And those were some pretty, like you said, volatile times uh, in society and in politics and so many different things kind of happening. The women's movement um, uh, how in the world did entertainment enter into any of what you've just described <laughs> in such a rich kind of cultural and and active background were did you were you going to movies were you going to shows did were your parents at all, other than the brief flirtation with CBS that your father had was there any kind of active involvement in, in some form of entertainment or show business well
2: well there was actually big time but it was it was a it was uh it was a love of the theater um, and okay. if you think about politics you know politics and theater and um, politics in Hollywood have very close uh, you know have have a close a, a close association right. um, but for me it was the theater I, I loved um, uh, being involved in plays in in elementary school and literally you know producing if you want to call it that um uh plays <laughs> are you
1: talking about like local backyard em- in the living even, room everywhere exactly yeah. everywhere and um you call that producing i think exactly that's, that's where you hone those skills <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when you um, when you talk your you know one of your siblings into doing something that's the last thing in the world they want to do but you make them be a part of that number from oklahoma or whatever you do that's that's producing.
2: Well, if that qualifies, then it was producing <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I was, I loved the theater my whole life. When I was fourteen, um, my parents. Um, What I want to do is go to a Broadway show, and we lived, like I said, we were upstate, not up upstate, so we were about two hours north of the city, so getting back and forth wasn't a problem. So I'll never forget, for my 14th birthday, we went to see the Rothschilds on Broadway with Hal Linden and Jill Clayburgh, and and. I was transformed. I fell in love. It was my first Broadway show. I remember the songs. I remember the cast to this day. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to work in the theater. Um, so. Mm. That's where um, that's where I started, and I, I went to theater school at Boston. I went to the theater school at Boston University, right. and and continued.
1: So yeah, so BU obviously a big part of your life, and you're still very much involved with them, as I know well because my son went there, and you uh-huh. have been very gracious to him. Um, I, it's interesting that um, one of the things that comes up when I talk with people in a creative capacity, which is pretty much everybody who's come through and done this, is is the path from here to there is never exactly what you expected. I mean, you just said uh, fell in love with theater, theater major at, at BU. Um, the idea was probably producing plays maybe being in plays perhaps directing I would imagine with the kind of the strong upbringing you had that you wanted to not just be in it but you wanted to be in charge (laughs) I would guess uh be behind the scenes kind of create not just kind of be in stuff I would imagine
2: it was it was a um a kind of slow process to to realize that um I think that um I wanted. I started. I started wanting to be a performer. That was my first love, and um, so I. Were you I want, good? You know what? I think I was okay. <laughs> I don't know if I was great. Um, I think I was. I think I uh, look. I had to audition to get into Boston University, so obviously I had something going on. Right. But, right. Um, and i i think i was good i think right. i was good um well there's
1: a point at which i think performers mm-hmm. that just doesn't satisfy them anymore i mean that that's obviously an an initial way in to for most people that they kind of just want to be a part of it but then a college is usually a place where you go oh there are other roles that might satisfy me even more or or sometimes those are just handed to you and you don't expect them that's usually what happens is the left turn comes and you go, oh, this is where I can thrive. When did that come along?
2: Um, kind of college, and I think, ironically, more in college as as giving me an opportunity to have an academic approach to material um, and studying the history of theater, studying the fundamentals of 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 how plays were developed, what. Um, sort of what was the socio-political climate behind uh, why and how certain playwrights uh, generated certain material, um, and it always felt like, um, you know, a, just a really interesting forum to express a point of view. And um, and I think what, what BU gave me, too, was—I mean, it just opened my eyes wide to, as you said— a world of possibility, um, and certainly working in you know all of the the elements of the tools that an actor needs to hone his or her craft you know voice dance movement and and so I was always interested in how things broke down and deconstructing things and 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 then how you ultimately can reconstruct it and put it back together it can have a different shape it can have a different feel Um, so it really did it did give me an opportunity to look at things um, from so many different perspectives which is what when I when I after graduation in Boston I moved to New York and worked in the theater off-Broadway for about three years and that too gave me a chance to see all the components of what what was behind running you know an off-Broadway theater right
1: okay so the immediate reaction I get is because I've been around enough actors and my son has (laughs) been one Um, you are your your critical thinking is coming from a, a an kind of an outside view of how does this impact the world whereas and no offense actors uh they're thinking how does this affect me what do i do how do i and and that's okay because actors kind of have to be that they're they're part of a whole but they're focusing on performance they're focusing on kind of a a very for lack of a better term self-centered way of approaching this but you're looking at the impact culturally and this is obviously coming from you know that these things can have impact. You saw where plays had not just an emotional response, but can can actually maybe change things, that art can be very powerful. And how does that work, and how does that get started? How much of that is the thread? Because I want to kind of, when I can, keep coming back to the book Mm -hmm. here, because I think this is the, the thing that has motivated you. How does this come back to the lessons your mother taught you from the standpoint of of you finding your way in the world. I mean, were you able to make progress the way as a woman in this world right away? Were you hitting any brick walls or were you finding that if you had, you know, it, that you were getting support along the way?
2: Well, I I was always getting support along the way. And, and you know, and my mother did have a very profound effect on me in terms of my thinking. You know, I don't want to say that I was entitled I've, or I felt entitled, but I did, Feel somewhat entitled to achieve, pursue, to follow whatever path um, with a passion and 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 enthusiasm um, that that you know she could she felt for me as well. Um, I think how this ties back to the book is she had one you know she was obviously my primary influence, but she impacted my life in, in you know and she's still with me, so in a very direct and and singular way. Um and and she's just one of millions and millions and millions and millions of mothers who also are impacting and influencing and and you know sharing with their daughters the same sense of purpose and principle and and so all of these different voices together You know, as we were talking about in the theater, there are all these different voices. Everybody plays a different role, but you're working towards a common goal. You're working towards, you know, as we said, gender equality. It's really simple. You know, it's just called being fair.
0: Right. Um,
2: And and the minute you have that, you know, so many other things fall into place. Um, So there is a direct correlation to, you know, my mother sharing kind of her personal stories you know the story of my grandmother who came to this country um as the eldest of four so that's five siblings in her family her mother had passed away her father you know spoke didn't speak a lot of english um and she basically had to take care of her brothers and sisters when she came here. And that's a story of resilience. That's a study that's a story of of achievement. Um, that's a story of, you know, as Hillary said last night, it's not whether or not you get knocked down, it's do you get back up. Right, right. And those are that story that she shared with me about my grandmother and the stories that of of, of you know, personal success that my mother had. Those are the stories that are part of my personal narrative. And and again, when you look at the book, every one of the mothers who contributed has a very different personal anecdote, but yet there is thematic resonance Mm -hmm. between all of them.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. So let's get you back to New York. So what, what, what kind of traction do you get in theater when you get there? Uh, not much. Okay, <laughs> That's <laughs> not hard. Not
2: it's very hard. Did you um,
1: think it would be that difficult? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah?
2: I did. I had no delusions that this was going to be an easy path. What um, was the
1: goal when you got there? Was it just to, to be involved? Did you want to put up something on your own? Um, all of that? Just kind of I- any way to be involved?
2: I wanted my equity card. That was the big yeah. thing. When any actor sort of comes to New York City um, to work in the theater... You want your equity card first. That, you know, kind of legitimizes you. And it also affiliates you with the union, which does afford and protect, um, you know, so many aspects of your life as an actor. Um, And that was kind of what I was working towards. And I, I was fortunate that my husband... Um, who I met at college, uh, worked at the Roundabout Theater in New York City. He brought me along there, so I was working there too. And the the two of us were, you know, hoping to get our equity cards, um, which ultimately didn't materialize, but it did give me a chance to really explore and learn all aspects of what goes on behind the scenes in the theater—building the set, taking down the set—you know, working on the fundraising for the campaign—you know, working with the subscribers, working in front of house, working in the box office—and and it was a regional theater, so it really gave me um, such a unique vantage point. I'm mean, I'm so grateful for that for well, those few years. The Roundabout, just yeah. I mean,
1: to this day, still one of the most influential. Uh, companies in on on Broadway what what kind of what productions did you see come through there that you had got to experience
2: oh my god well they were at that point you know the uh were very well known for doing contemporary classics so you you would saw you saw She Stoops not She Stoops but it was it was Heartbreak House there was Shaw, Pirandello, Chekhov um, uh, look Back in Anger um, with uh, 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 Amanda Plummer. Uh, not, excuse not Amanda Plummer, but Amanda Plummer did Taste of Honey, which moved to Broadway. Um, look Back in Anger with Lisa Baines. Um, and there were just, you know, wonderful um, stage actors coming through um, the theater, coming uh, Constantly, yeah, As I said, Heartbreak House, Don Juan in Hell, It was um, they were all of the great contemporary
0: classics.
1: Just watching your face describing. See, see this is what's interesting about you, Nina, is because I think they're one of the biggest raps that network executives get is that they come from a background that has nothing to do necessarily with the creative or performance side of things. But here you are glowing over actors, and you have these amazing memories of these productions, and it's not just because they did well or make money or move to Broadway you really loved watching these people work and that's unusual I think for a TV executive to be able to take those skills and go on and do what you did but you have a real love for good actors good writing Good performances, good productions. Well, right?
2: that, absolutely, and and I and again, I I I owe that in in great part to the education I had at Boston University, learning about the theater, the history of theater, the fundamentals of theater, um, the great writers of our day, as well as you know from Shakespeare to to from the Greek uh, you know uh, Greek dramatists to Shakespeare to contemporary playwrights. Um, but I also have to say that. Um, you know, one of the great fortunate experiences of my life was being hired by Leslie Moonves, who also has the same background. Um, Leslie was my boss at, uh, we worked together for over 25 years um, at Mar Warner Brothers and then CBS. And Leslie, I think he might have been pre-med for five minutes when he was in college. <laughs> um, but then once he got out, he was, he worked in the theater. He worked off Broadway in New York as well, I think on Broadway too, um, behind the scenes um, and then moved out to L.A. and also... Uh, worked in the theater. He worked with the Catalina group uh, for a number of years in Los Angeles. So he too really had that kind of training and background. And when he hired me, I think he really um, he responded to my background in that it was closely uh, Mm -hmm. similar to his.
1: So where along the line do we begin to make that transition? When does it become this love for theater and how does how in the world does it translate to the world of TV?
2: Well, it's interesting because when I first moved out here, I was fortunate to have, I had a couple of friends out here. One, um, my roommate in college, Uh, And my dearest friend to this day is Gina Davis. And then another girlfriend of mine had – Sarah Zinter was involved in the Pacific Resident Theater Ensemble, which is out in Venice. They had just started um, – Sarah had just started the theater company out there with a small group of friends. Gina was working on a show called Sarah, which was by Gary David Goldberg on, I think wow. it was on NBC. I have,
1: uh, yeah, Bill Maher was in yes. that show and Bronson, Woodard. Bronson, Bronson Pinchot. Yeah. Why do I remember <laughs> Sarah, <laughs> Nina?
2: Right, oh my right.
1: God. Right. As we I, like
2: to say, those things get caught in the pleats of your brain. Yeah,
1: but I, I wish I could remember my phone number <laughs> and not the cast of Sarah. Anyway. <laughs> that's right, that's um, right. But anyway, go ahead.
2: <laughs> so I moved out here and what happened is I needed a... A job desperately. And uh, Gina was so wonderful. She introduced me to, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just needed a job. I needed a paycheck.
1: Now, I got to ask, being purely an East Coast person for your entire life up to that point, was there an anti-Hollywood part of you that just was like, oh, I don't want to go to, really? Los Angeles? And ew. I mean, <laughs> is Yeah, you're nodding. Yeah,
2: it was a little bit. I I would say I'd I'd only been out here a couple of times before. So it was a little, I felt a little like a stranger in a strange land. Mm -hmm. Um, But my husband was also out here. He really liked the, the, he liked the lifestyle for us. He also was, um, uh, he's an actor and a director and he had, had he made, yeah, I think he had made a movie. He had, he. My my husband was one of the actors in Teen Wolf. Right. Um. So he he had seen um the opportunity that was out here, and um. So, obviously, we had a, f- a few friends out here, but I needed a job. Sarah, intru- um, Sarah Gina introduced me to her agent, um, and so I said maybe there's a career in the agency business. Um, my other girlfriend, who was active in the theater, I was auditioning for, and I did a couple of plays at the Pacific Resident Theater Ensemble as an actor when I first moved out here. Um, and th- through a friend, through a friend, I got a job as a receptionist at a talent agency. So I was working as a reception um receptionist in a talent agency during the day and doing the plays at night and it was very hard i mean i couldn't i couldn't juggle both and i was not making any money really at either place certainly not <laughs> at the theater and 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 you know i was just starting as a receptionist at a talent agency so you know i was being paid a receptionist salary at the time um and i realized i couldn't I, it was hard doing both mm-hmm. um and then a, by some fluke, I got a call to go for an interview at a larger agency, Triad artists uh, which in its day was one of the top five agencies uh, in the world in terms of size and reach and the clients that they represented um, and they f- they were formed I believe in nineteen eighty four I joined them in nineteen eighty five um and it was that interview and that that meeting and that job that really sort of just changed my life
1: that flipped the switch Um, and you say it was a fluke I mean how and again this is another one of those kind of common things that happen is because so much of what happens in our all of our paths has been the unexpected and also the need to be prepared when when that happens and there's some I'm terrible at homilies and sayings, and somebody's got a much better phrase about how that happens. But it's something about, you know, being prepared when good luck happens. That was that moment, right?
2: That was that moment. And it was a, uh, I received a phone call from, and I was so naive. I received a phone call from an agent at Triad Artists. Um, and I got remember those little phone messages that used used to tear out of a pad that said, you know, while you're out, so yeah, and so yeah. called, right? A little and it flimsy was, little pet right. paper, right? And the carbonless yeah. paper was like, ooh, this was magic. There's no carbon, and <laughs> and you thought, what an invention! And um, uh, technology is
1: amazing,
2: exactly. <laughs> and so I got this call from this agent at Triad, and I thought, oh my gosh, this must be TriStar because I'd never heard of Triad at the time, and make a long story short, this agent had heard from a casting director in New York who actually knew a little bit about me but had worked with my husband. So they were looking for an agent to cover legitimate theater at Triad Artists. They had asked the casting director who just kind of knew me slightly, um, mentioned my name. I got the call. I went over for the meeting and um, did not get the job that the legitimate theater job, but got another job instead for one of the partners at the agency, a gentleman by the name of John Kimball, who was truly one of the dearest people I've ever worked with and is a close friend to this day. And I worked for him for five
1: years. Wow. All right. So in literally we get you have such a an amazing path, but I want to get to CBS and also Mm -hmm. want to talk about the book Mm -hmm. and I don't want to keep you here forever. Um, So in quick succession, what happens next, 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 and (laughs) and next? What gets you to CBS?
2: Five years at Triad. Then I realized I was up for promotion. I realized I don't want to be an agent. Um, I knew one of the studios I covered was Lorimar. I knew about the, the company. I'd made a number of deals for clients at Lorimar. And I said, well, I like Lorimar. I heard I've heard about this guy Leslie Moonves. I want to go meet him. Um, I call everybody I know to help me get the meeting. I get the meeting. I get the job. I work for Leslie at Lorimar in long form <clears throat> movies and miniseries. Then I work in drama in Warner Brothers, where Leslie takes over the the studio at Warner Brothers, uh, and then he moves to CBS. Uh, he waits about eighteen months. Or I'm <clears throat> excuse me. I. Um, Have to wait about eighteen months uh, until um, his no-raid clause expires, (laughs) and then he brings me over to work for him. And I started at CBS Productions in drama at CBS in nineteen ninety-four. Yeah, and um, and he just kept promoting me up the ranks, and uh, so worked my way up from the director of motion pictures and television at Lorimar up to ultimately chairman of CBS. Uh, A few years ago
1: So in that past So we're talking 1992 At the time you get to CBS So you worked your way up Through the 80s Lorimar What were some of the projects That stick out from the Lorimar Lorimar time well, Lorimar so was a I was very in- common name that I remember seeing as the, as the TV idiot that I was, obviously, from knowing the cast of Sarah. <laughs> uh, I saw Lorimar pictures all the time or Lorimar productions all Laura the time. Lorimar was huge. I yeah. mean, Leslie
2: really built that into an empire. And um, at that, that time, I was involved in... Th- only movies and miniseries, so we did Miss Rose White. We did um, – there were a number of big movies and miniseries that that happened um, during Deliberate Stranger with Mark Harmon. Um, Yeah, that was
1: the period of the TV movie. Oh, it was was all TV movies. That was a very hot thing to do. Exactly,
2: exactly. Um, And – but then when I moved into series, I was one of the – again, one of many Uh, to work on ER so that was probably one of the most exciting experiences of my life Um, working on ER Lois and Clark the New Adventures of Superman sisters um, there were a number of there was a a short-lived comedy that I was involved in It started as a drama but suddenly Susan that started Brooke Shields for a while so I was involved in that because we developed it as a kind of dramedy, and then it became a comedy. Yeah. So those were some of the, the Laura Warner Brothers uh, experiences.
1: Um, any at, at any point during this period, and again, kind of going back to the theme of the book a little bit, it was how were you being accepted as a female? Were, were there many other executives, female executives in the business that had been working in the same way you were?
2: Well, it's interesting because the movie of the week business was almost predominantly women, Mm -hmm. Um, women executives, women producers, women writers. It was a really... A, a great time for women in that uh, in that aspect of the business. I have to say, and I, I I actually was sitting with Leslie yesterday, and we were just talking about things. You know, I was very fortunate. He was, um, you know, he's the father of a daughter who's does is very successful. He's always been a big supporter of promoting women and and getting behind their careers. And he ha- he was always incredibly supportive of of me and. Um, was a mentor and a role model, and um, so I feel I was I was sort of. And then my boss before him, John Kimball, was the same way. So I feel that I was one of the lucky ones, and I know there are countless stories of women who um, who did suffer uh, in the entertainment business, sexism and and you know cronyism. And I was truly one of the fortunate ones. Now, I did not in any way, shape, or form feel that I, – I always acknowledged it existed for so many other women. I was just one of the people that would was, – was supported, was nurtured, um, and um, – but always felt, you know, you can't, you can't just turn a blind eye.
1: There certainly seems to have been some high-profile female executives at various studios, and Sherry Lansing comes to mind. I mean, it seemed like the door was open for some to move through, despite the fact that it was probably still harder and still having to kind of prove yourself and constantly prove yourself in the moment you took them a step. Um, but for the most part, you felt supported during I was. that journey. Yeah. I
2: definitely was. But 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 you're right. I mean, there women executives, women in general, and and there are countless articles and statistics that are now available to for all of us to look at in terms of, you know, the sort of the penalties that you 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 run into when you become a mother and the bonuses you run into, you know, you you achieve when you become a father. So it's it's a really interesting um, dilemma right now. And um, but I felt and I still feel, you know, again women are, are held to a very different standard and. Um, there's a uh, again. There's a saying in the book that that I'm trying to remember. I think it's it's um, uh, not Judy Friedenberg, but it might be Ruth Messinger's daughter who talks about you know women have to do you know twice as much work work have to work twice as hard as a man in half the time um, to be half the man that, you know, the half to half the man that, that most people can be, most men can be. And and that on the back it says that shouldn't be difficult. Or there's a T shirt, you know, saying that says <laughs> and on the back it says that shouldn't be difficult. Um, and so but 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 I do feel still, again, women are just are are held to a different standard and mothers even more so.
1: So uh, you're at CBS and you begin this just like ridiculous role. I mean, uh, how do we even begin to talk about the number of different shows? that uh, what, what in what state was CBS when you got there in '92?
2: <laughs> we were in fourth place right. at the time. <laughs> um, it was interesting because I know too from 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 Leslie, and 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 I do also have to preface anything I say that there are there's a sort of a philosophy by which I live my life. Um, which is there's no limit to what a man, and I added to, I amended it to, a man or woman can do if he or she doesn't mind who gets the credit. So... You know, I was very fortunate in that I, I worked with an extraordinary group of people, an extraordinary team of people, and I have to also say lot. So many of my the assistants that I've been fortunate to work with over the year have over the years have gone to achieve extraordinary success, multi Emmy winners, running studios, you know, running production companies, celebrated writers. So I was I was I got a chance to work with really great people, but we were in fourth place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, you're great at deflecting credit and that's all, you know, sweet and humble and everything. But come on. I mean, the fact is, yes, here, I'll give you credit for this. You recognized that you had really good people because if they were able to move on and do what they did, mm-hmm. You were not the type of boss who tried to keep those people down or keep them as your minions, which I've had those bosses who yes. would prefer to hire people who are just good enough to do a good job, but you have to keep them at that level the whole time to feel you know empowered over them or or to keep your own position safe or whatever you didn't feel threatened by having good people around you so I'll give you credit for that and also you had the ability to green light or you know, say no to mm-hmm. all of these shows that you know. You said yes to you. You nurtured Big Bang Theory and How I Met Your Mother, and you were part of ER and The Good Wife and the the whole late night transition at CBS. and And uh, 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 while network TV seems to be a an, uh, <laughs> a species that is in danger these days, you have you helped keep CBS at the top, going from what. What was a fourth-place network in 1992? So I'm just sitting here saying, shut up, Nino. <laughs> Take some frickin' credit um, for having the foresight to know what the public was wanting and also stuff that was actually really good and solid entertainment. All right, there's my rant. Um, uh, but yes, good, good for you for uh, you know, letting those people work their way up. What was the first big victory for you at CBS? What was the one where it was like, oh... I think I think I got to this.
2: Well, it was sort of like a there were it was a sort of two-step process. Um it, the first was a show called Judging Amy that we had with Tyne Daly and Amy Brenneman. And that was the first show that really began to take what had um And again, the shows that were on the air at CBS before we got there, were very successful. You know, you had Murder She Wrote, you had Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, you had Touched by an Angel. You know, these were these were very big hits for the network in their day. And you know, you have to keep refreshing your hits and keep introducing new hits to a network schedule. So one of the first the first show we did was Judging Amy. And and again, what was so you know what, what? What was so clear about that show? It, it came from Amy Brenneman's personal life. Her mother was one of the first family court judges uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, one of the first women to graduate uh, from uh, Yale Law School. So it had that authentic feel. It had that. It had that richness. And and then um, and the script was written by Barbara Hall, who ironically now has got Madam Secretary on the air. So Barbara is is someone who I've been very fortunate to work with over the years. Judging Amy being the first. No, actually, we worked together at Warner Brothers, but um, but but one of the first projects we did at CBS. The second sort of piece to the to the to the puzzle was CSI, and and that we launched CSI the same year that we launched Survivor. Now, again, Maynard, who was in charge of at that time and scripted programming was very passionate and identified the the kind of success that survivor could
1: be. Yeah, I, th- I think people forget that Survivor was really the first one oh, yeah. that that basically started the deluge but it was also a very big hit and a and a critical hit in a way for people who didn't want to, you know, bang on those shows. Sur- and the fact that Survivor still Around.
2: And successful. <laughs> and doing well. And doing well. Yeah. And, and, Gen and people do, love it. Yes. Gen to his credit, and the sales executives at CBS really identified that. But CSI, which was, you know, by all accounts, um, not a CBS show, um, it had been passed on by all the other networks. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a very dear friend of mine, Jonathan Lippman, who worked for Jerry Bruckheimer, still works for Jerry Bruckheimer, brought the pitch in to us. And, and it was at the very end of, of our the buying season. Um, and he just – he said, please hear this. I promise you, even if you don't buy it, it will be the most entertaining pitch you will ever hear. <laughs> and he was right, and we bought it in the room.
1: Yeah. What, what was it about that pitch? What was it about – I mean, people will look at that now, and it seems like such a no-brainer – uh, it's a procedural. You've got, you know, something you have to solve every week. You've got this ensemble of people who kind of bring... And also technology, which was, at that point, just kind of becoming a thing. I mean, we... I, it's funny watching the People versus O.J. Simpson and the whole segment on DNA. Exactly. And, and how it was basically just kind of washed over because it was... It sounded like science fiction. That's basically what CSI was built on. Was- well, I
2: was dismissed from a jury because I had worked on CSI. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yes. The judge looked at me. And, and said, well, you d- d- you did what? And then just said, dismissed, you know.
1: <laughs> You're too prejudiced when it comes <laughs> to that. Oh, how funny. But yeah, you were you were broaching a subject that at that point did still mm-hmm. seem very science fiction and was just people were just wrapping their heads around Correct. it. Correct. But it, was that part of the pitch that you saw that there was uh, the kind of... Uh, was it was it the science aspect of it was it, it was just an old-fashioned mystery solving thing the combination of those what what turned you on about that well a
2: couple of things one is uh, Anthony Zeiker, the young man who created the show um, had lived in Las Vegas had gone on many many ride alongs with the with the CSI uh, uh team who done who who worked on the graveyard shift in Las Vegas. So the setting itself was very intriguing and then when Anthony came in and and by the way it was the mo- one of the most entertaining pitches I've ever seen in my life. Anthony was like a bouncing ball in my office. He could not sit still. Um, That's an
1: art unto itself, isn't it? Oh, yes. Because I've learned a little bit about that myself. The, the, The difference between sitting and conceiving and writing and creating and finishing a script and then taking that into a room and basically putting that on for somebody who may decide whether they want to take it further or not, whether it's a producer or, or an executive or whatever. Those are two completely different art forms. Completely. And you need to kind of have to know both, right?
2: Exactly. And, and, and in some ways... Almost antithetical to a writer's process. Yeah. You know, you're isolated, alone. You're quiet. You're thinking, as opposed to pitching, where you are entertaining. You're telling a story. You've got to, you know, really create this and you know this gigantic canvas. Yeah, the and extrovert
1: in you is going to have to come out. Exactly. In that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, but he had, he had, he pitched extraordinary characters, a great deal of realism, um, and using what had been a um, uh you know just the the beginning of the forensic you know the the you know the forensic science um and how much, um, and how much knowledge, firsthand knowledge he had by actually going on these ride-alongs, working with the crime scene investigators, um, and then juxtaposing that with the craziness of Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting, too, is I, you know, when you talk about O.J. Simpson, I was at Warner Brothers when we did Frogman with O.J. Simpson. So, oh, no. you know, I knew full, you know,
1: all too well. That's where those pictures surfaced from, <laughs> of him with the, with the knife? Was that the, yeah, yeah? they must have been,
2: there were probably some set photos. You know, yeah. set uh, uh, photographers. Prop
1: knives. He was in in his wetsuit or whatever.
2: Yeah, oh, no. yeah. <laughs> um, so I've always been intrigued by forensics. I mean, going back to I was a big fan of Quincy. You, that oh, when yeah. Jack Klugman did, but he was a medical examiner. He right. wasn't in forensics. And but you know, and by no means there was little or no science involved in Quincy as well. No, he,
1: I have a feeling that they barely cracked the book on that show. They were just kind of making a lot of that up as they went. Well, I'm sure they had some sort of doctor as, as as an advisor on that show, but it was it was a little iffy when it came to the science. And I
2: mean, it was mostly Jack Klugman running around screaming at everybody. Right. So, but. But I, I loved it. I loved it. I and did too. Yeah. Um, so it was that, and and you know. I still maintain that there's little correlation between how much you pay for a script and if that show will ever become a success because it was just a script that we bought. You know, in this day and age, I mean, there are multimillion dollar commitments made to shows, to series. And the truth is, you know, and this has been Leslie's philosophy, my philosophy, which is the cream rises to the top. Mm -hmm. If something is good, it will find its way to to an audience. Yeah.
1: Well, obviously, with the CSI and the the franchise that that created, which was just a phenomenon, I mean, I don't think there's any been anything like that was unprecedented in television mm-hmm. to have that many different versions of that. And I, I've actually had the chance to talk on this podcast with Trey Calloway, who yes. worked on CSI uh, yes, he New York, did. He did. Um, and just to kind of hear the inside of the, you know, database of, information that they would have to cross index to make sure that one story didn't, you know, how many different weird deaths, can, murders can you investigate? Absolutely. And the fact that they were have still been able to kind of create those. Um, but yeah, but just the process of going. Well, what if he gets electrocuted by a by a taser in right. the middle of a pool? And it's like, no, right. oh, that was done back in nineteen. Right. We did that on
2: Miami, right? We did that. <laughs> but you, you know, you had, you know, it was it was a really extraordinary time because you had the Law and Order franchise, which was doing very well. You had CSI, which did very well. We now have NCIS New Orleans and NCIS. Mm-hmm. We also, you know, you look at the the Chicago Med, the Chicago series that Dick Wolf has done. I mean, he's a force of nature. Um, And and I think that what's what is interesting about about these franchises is that you know as they're set in different cities or they look at storytelling that, you know, from from different different kinds of franchises, if it's medical and law, whatever, I mean it it speaks to you know how 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 truly grounded and and how much Um, real material there is Mm -hmm. to mine. Mm
1: -hmm. I also would have to say that one of the smartest things that was done is to cast these things with some... I mean, CSI, the original William Peterson and Mark Helgenberger, not necessarily household names, but solid actors who had good careers behind them who were very good. I mean, they were just good actors. And then you were able to kind of translate that into... Caruso and uh, Gary Sinise, for crying out loud, who, what a brilliant casting, then Lawrence Fishburne and Ted Danson. So you had these kind of great faces, great names, and might I add, commendable from somebody of of a certain age, mature actors. Yes. People who, I mean, they may have been surrounded by some pretty faces, but mature actors in these roles. Yes. And, And it wasn't necessarily just to appeal to older adults, because these shows were winning across the board demographically. Um, that says something, too, that you relied on the fact that these people were going to bring great acting, a certain gravitas, um, a familiar face, certainly, and probably people who were having trouble finding roles that they enjoyed in in movies. If anything, CSI might have actually kind of helped start that push toward TV being acceptable to take as... As a full time job again. Well, you, it's always
2: interesting. I mean, we we this country, we still have a little bit of a um, you know, there's a little bit of a um, you know, a shrug when I think about how you know there still is that stigma. You know, in you know, when you work in one medium and then crossing over to another, if you work in is it still there? You think? Um, yeah, I think a little bit, not so much. I mean, but 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 I maybe it's a little bit better. But you know, I think that you know Gary Sinise has had and you know an incredible stage actor. You know Steppenwolf actor of Out of Chicago. Um, you know, let's you know Forrest Gump was truly one of the most extraordinary roles ever created, and Billy Peterson too, Manhunter. I mean, this was a man who also. Uh, an accomplished stage actor right, right. Um, and and so I think it it they responded to the character, the material um and also you know there is a certain stability that that working in television does afford you you know if you if you have a family, if you want to have a family, if you want to have a life um, you know and especially if you're working in 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 some form of an ensemble, you know, there's a lot of of there's a lot of upside to being able to also work on a character that is going to evolve and change over multiple years. You know, as opposed to when you're doing on stage, you're doing the same character every week, eight shows a week. And when you're doing a movie, you've done that character, you've shot it, it's in the can, you're done. So, you know, if you are creative, you have a chance to really explore and mine, you know, the deeper history and of 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 a character. Right.
1: Right. Um, biggest your, your what would you say is your proudest moment at CBS? Do you have one that you can pinpoint?
2: Oh my, um, you know what? It's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a moment. I can't distill it down to a moment. Um, I mean, I would say one thing I'm proud of. Um, you know, I'm look, I'm very proud of being able to to have a relationship and work for. One person for twenty five years. That's really in rare. In this in this business, yeah. it's very rare. Working for Leslie for twenty five years was was really amazing and a real blessing. And I would say, you know, and I it, this like a in, a in a in a twist of good luck. Um, when we shot Big Bang, we shot a pilot. This was Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady. We shot a pilot of Big Bang with Johnny Kalecki and Jim Parsons and another actress and um, uh, Kunal and and Simon Helberg. Um, but the pilot didn't work. And um, but it but a lot of it did work. And the the chemistry between Johnny and Jim was was palpable
1: from from go. Oh, from go, from wow. go, yeah
2: the following year so we did not pick up the pilot the year that we shot it but I called Chuck Lorre and I called Bill Prady and I said would would you ever consider doing another pilot Um, let's make some changes and um, let's rewrite rework the script Um, Wendy Trilling who was the comedy executive at the time we all worked together she worked on the script and because Chuck Lorre said yes to that new pilot and because, because Bill Prady said yes to that new pilot I mean Big Bang has literally been a Big Bang. And um, so I would say that was a really good twist of fate. And, and working with Leslie for all these years has been extraordinary. It,
1: it, it is an extraordinary show in that um, it is uh, the multi-camera sitcom seems to be Almost an extinct form now, and CBS seems very devoted to keeping yes. that alive. It's continued to be extremely popular, and I'm a I'm a big big bang def- big big bang defender. Mm-hmm. Not that it needs defending when it's popular, except you know the hipster intelligentsia loves to go. Well, it's no blah blah <laughs> uh, because it is that that you know that act structure and that kind of classic sitcom. But when the writing's that good and it's that funny and the and the cast is that amazing and it stayed that consistent all this time mm-hmm. and in with what subtle changes it's made that it's that it's still remains fresh. And also just that kind of luck of the zeitgeist of of kicking oh. in when the comic book and superhero world and also just the advances in science that those can kind of simultaneously be happening and distill that into a sitcom and just casting Bob Newhart in those episodes. Come on. Genius.
2: Genius. I mean, how
1: amazing, um, by the way, I've only worked for Les Moonbez two years, and it's been very pleasurable, <laughs> okay. um, even though he's trying to sell us off. <laughs> but I don't blame him. Um, as long as he does it the right way, I won't complain. Um, well, the, the run at CBS is just remarkable. Um, I have to. These are the obligatory interview questions when you talk to somebody who's done what you've done. Uh, what was the one you let get away it, I don't you, know if
2: we'd let it get away, but we, we, we were pitched Modern Family. It was a terrific pitch, um, and, you know, we just we didn't let it get away. We just didn't get the deal. But, yeah. you know, it, it was a, it's a fantastic show, and, uh, you know, that was probably one of the ones that, you know, I wish we had. But, uh, you know, I think, as they said, that was – we didn't let it get away. It got away. Yeah. yeah.
1: What about one that you really wanted to succeed and it just didn't take hold?
2: Well, it's it's people are kind of sick of hearing me say it, but it, this was a show called Swingtown, and it was on the air during the writer strike. It was right after the writer strike ended, and it was about. Um, it, it was. It wasn't really swinging, but it was. It was secretly about the women's movement in the '70s and mm-hmm. 1976 in Chicago. Again, it was based on personal experience uh, by Mike Kelly, who wrote it, and uh, it was also. It also dealt with uh, open marriage and and couples who were swinging. So. <laughs>
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, it might have been a little ahead of its time, maybe maybe, maybe. I do think it was ahead of its time yeah, absolutely it sounds like it, yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, that would be Netflix would go, okay, eight episodes, exactly. here's a thousand million dollars <laughs> um so now what's what are you doing now? Everybody's wondering what's Nina doing now. You, are you out of you're out of that place, right? You're not there anymore. No,
2: I'm still there, I, but you? I'm I'm on I'm do still on the lot. Do they know you're still there? Yes, they do. do yes, the, they do. The, Is
1: the key card working? Are you sneaking in?
2: Key card works very well, actually. Um, I am in a new building. I have a new office. Um, I'm on the lot, um, still, uh, you know, developing some television pieces, some theater, and um, you know, like just I said,
1: not at the capacity of at that level anymore. Oh, yes.
2: And they've got, you know, I mean, I've stepped away. So I'm just an advisor. So you're
1: nurturing your own specific project.
2: Exactly. Taking my time. Gotcha. um, And still working. You know, I was over to say hello to Leslie the other day. Um, The CBS has been incredibly supportive uh, in promoting and helping launch the book, which is doing very well. So um, it's... um, It's uh, So like I said, I'm around, but but being able to sort of work at a different pace and in a different capacity.
1: So the book, um, like you said, over the past four years, at some point you decided you were just going to reach out to these women. And obviously most of them you've you've met or you have relationships with or you've known. But you were inspired at some point to kind of get these messages that they all got from – their own mothers, basically, or have given to their given to their uh, daughters. daughters. Right. Um, it,
2: it actually, um, I figured, if I was asking that question and I was looking for the information, and I'm not good with the kind of how-to book, and I didn't want to be preached to, I didn't be, want to be lectured to. And what if I was reading just one woman's story and she said you have to do A, B, and C, and I'm like, and I think I can't do A, B, and C, or right. I'm not A, B, and C. I'm D, E, and F, and and so I thought, well, if I can find a compilation, if I can find something that that is also in, you know, each woman's own voice, that would speak to me. And I realized that one didn't exist. And I made this wish list of people from women from all walks of life, all disciplines, politics, um, science, academia, entertainment, cooking, um, uh, philanthropy.
1: Right. Here are some of the names. Mia Hamm, the Olympian, Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who... Like, she's a party animal, right? Yes. She's
0: like,
1: (laughs) I love her. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Marsha McNutt, uh, Mm -hmm. model Beverly Johnson. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Oh, Dolores Huerta. Yes. Um, You know, a real wide range, but obviously all very strong women who have made their mark in some way. Yes. Um, So all different backgrounds, all different philosophies. But is there something unifying? Is it kind of going back to what you were talking about before? Is that... There's always been something that's, you know, potentially held them back and they just had to kind of persist.
2: I, I feel, I mean, if you look for essay to essay, it really is about gender equality, freedom of choice, um, and resilience. Um, by and large, um, every every single mother in this book talks about supporting um your daughter's right to choose the life that she wants and that there should be no uh, legal political obstacles in their way, in in their pursuit of that dream. Um, Whoopi Goldberg has a great saying in her essay about, you know, supporting a woman's right to choose or freedom of choice. It's not just a choice that you would make. It has to be a choice that she would make, your daughter would make. So I feel that, like I said, essay to essay, they are very – intimate and real and authentic and honest and in each woman's own voice Um, and you know when you realize one of the essays is Dr. Jahan Sadat on Sadat's widow and also former first lady Laura Bush that when they're sharing their stories and what they Wisdom and and experiences that they shared with their own daughter. There is that sense of okay, you may be a former daughter of a former first lady, but you you realize that you still are you still have to blaze your own path in life. You know, and you should you know you should be entitled to fully realize whatever your ambitions are.
1: How much of your mother's philosophy echoed through these women? I mean, it, it seems like again ahead of her time a little bit in terms of having this strong feeling, strong opinion, strong philosophy that she was passing along to you. It must have been just con- con- confirming those initial feelings you got from her.
2: Very much so. Um, one of my favorite essays is by Cecile Richards, who's the president of Planned Parenthood. And, you know, her mother was the late governor of, of Texas, Ann Richards. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that per- y- you don't get bigger personalities than Ann Richards. Right. And, um, and you can see how, you know, d- who Anne Richards was, it sort of is genetically made its way all the way through to her granddaughter, who is you know also a very inspired and powerful and enlightened young woman because of who Cecile is, because of who yeah. cecile's mother was so
1: so you must have thought if if you had had a different mother, a different type of mother, someone who was. A little more meek a little less strong a little more less outspoken how different you would be how how different would your life be had she not been that kind of presence
2: well it's really interesting because when you read the book there's an essay by Ayelet Waldman who was a shy and meek and quiet and is a writer a wonderful writer um and she and her essay appears in this month's uh, can I tell you the magazine that it's in? Or Sure. Oh, it's in this month's Good Housekeeping magazine. But Ayelet's article was about she was – Ayelet, as a mom, was a kind of shy and meek young woman and then ultimately a mother. And her daughter was this – at six years old, came out of, you know, <laughs> look came out of the womb announcing to the world she's here. And she was a high-spirited, you know, almost a queen bee type of personality and Ayala said that, you know, ultimately, you know, because she is a feminist and, and you know and had a very close relationship with her daughter daughters, um, you know, her daughter developed this strong sense of compassion and fairness and decency and everything. But Ayala said I was the kind of mother that this child needed mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting how you know it 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 we all kind of balance ourselves um, relative to what our daughter's needs are
1: right. oh, you, you mentioned Ann Richards I'm a Texan so I, I, I you know it's it, it's it's hard to believe Ann Richards was a Democrat female governor mm-hmm. in Texas mm-hmm. now does that sound like that could have could, – I mean, that, that seems so foreign now when you look at what that state and how they've been governed and, and, and how they've been leaning that Texas had a Democratic female governor for well, a while. Well, you know, but the South was,
2: used to be much more yeah. Democratic than it is. I mean, Lyndon Johnson came from the South. Yeah, Let's yeah. remember. So it's, it's – uh, you know, things have shifted. But, but yes, you're right. Yeah. It was,
1: it's it was, just kind of hard to fathom now. Um, uh, the book is What I Told My Daughter. Lessons from Leaders on Raising the Next Generation of Empowered Women. How has your daughter responded to this?
2: Um, She's uh, been great. I mean, she's uh, very excited. And, um, you know, this is her first—I took her to see Hillary speak about a month ago, and she'll be voting in this election. So— She's very excited. Um, I think she also loves the fact that <laughs> it's a lot about her, um, <laughs> which well, yeah, yeah, no. you know. yeah. She's a kid. She's yeah. a, she's, she's a teenager. A yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel that um, the conversations that we're having, um, as it relates to the book, but but just more about how that affirms the the quality of conversation we all need to have with our daughters from the moment they're born and you just keep talking about it for the rest of their lives
1: yeah absolutely and this is available now Mm -hmm. and um yeah it's terrific this is great marie osmond yes
2: wonderful her essay is fantastic
1: wow all right nina um it's so great to talk to you. I, I, I this has been great. I, I thank you for being like candid and 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 open about all this. You've had such an interesting career, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I have. Uh, I'm trying to kind of create, and you're. I just had Bardell Kelman on oh, speaking yes. of CBS and um, strong director. women. Um, we talked a lot about how Murphy Brown at that time. I <gasps> mean, coming from the '70s when you had these kind of, you know, Mary Tyler Moore shows and things like Maud. that. It was like. Murphy Brown was the first one in years that had a strong kind of really clear female character. Well, since
2: Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm.
1: But that's that's a long gap. Mm -hmm. That was ridiculous. And he talked about kind of the battle they had in having a character that strong. And, of Mm -hmm. course, there was all sorts of ridiculous controversy that came out of Dan Quayle and that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that's a show that I wish more people would go back and revisit, and it's hard to do because it's not on freaking DVD or on right. demand anywhere. So uh, go look at Murphy Brown, people. Um, so anyway, I, with him, I started this. I'm trying to kind of create this series of questions to wrap up the the podcast, a la J- James Lipton, except not as serious um, <laughs> or, or pretentious. Um, so I th- here's kind of what I came up with. Uh, since we you talked theater, uh, favorite play all time, bar none.
2: Um, I think it would have to be pippin
1: oh wow okay um if someone forced you uh, at gunpoint to go up and sing a song at a karaoke bar what would it be
2: it would probably be some enchanted evening oh
1: wow from south pacific oh yeah. we're going okay still <laughs> going in the theater old school. Mode. yeah 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 um uh, i would imagine the answer is at least tangentially yes to this but have you have you ever or would you ever consider working with a monkey?
2: Oh God, yes. My husband did. Yeah, he has worked, and I would absolutely work with a monkey.
1: (laughs) I love the enthusiastic reactions to the monkey question. Yes, Um, (laughs) I have to end on that. I mean, (laughs) the podcast is called Snark Monkey. I think that's that's the way to go. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Larry.
0: Get a monkey. Get a monkey.